listening to The Bulletin, the podcast from the St. Andrews Economist. My name is Elliot Vavitsis, and today I'm speaking with William Finlater about the year ahead and Italian politics. So, William, I understand you've uh, studied the, what's been going on in Italy for some time now, and I mean, it's pretty messy. So tell me about where, where, what is the build, build up to the point we're at right now? Yeah, so I mean, you're right, it's it's very confusing. It's um, sort of a lot of moving parts are going on, many different parties, all with uh, different names going up and down. I think it's quite hard to get actually to the bottom of it. So I think what really helps is going back about five years to the previous election to see where the state of Italian politics, um, where the state of Italian politics was five years ago and why it's transformed um, into something different and what are the particular problems that pose with this new politics. So five years ago, essentially, you had two populist outlets, the Five Star Movement and the Liga Nord, um, forming a majority coalition as a result of the 2018 Italian elections. This, many um, liberal commentators, I would say at the time, felt deeply concerning. And to a certain extent, it, it may well have been. Um, these two parties, these two parties both have a history of populism, anti-establishmentism, and to a certain extent, Euroscepticism. But it turned out that one of these parties, the Five Star um, the Five Star Party was a lot less populist than first made out. Uh, originally, it had its roots in the south, south of Italy, um, and um, it was an odd form of populist party. It was it. Um, I think it could be broadly described as technocratic populism. But although it was anti-establishment, liked to complain about the Italy's corrupt elites, it uh, never it. It never sort of embraced, I think, much of um, sort of, uh, the right wing populism, the populist radical right, or PRR, as many sort of uh, many academics call it. That um, that many of the more potentially concerning um, concerning um, for at least liberals, um, Eurosceptic radical populist parties were. So so I think that you have this. You have uh, essentially you have um, tension between these two coalition parties that expressed itself really between a back and throw between these two parties, the Five Star Movement and the Liga Nord, which eventually resulted in the leader of the Liga Nord, Matteo Salvini, putting lots of pressure on the existing coalition. Um, and eventually, um, eventually he kept on threatening to pull out support for particular policies. He insulted the Prime Minister, so the Prime Minister was from neither two parties, he was a technocrat named Giuseppe Conte. Um, and insulting um, many members of the Five Star Party, as well as sort of posturing and saying how against immigration policy. Um, um, basically, he was an outsider from the inside, in, in a way. And, and this is the context, really, f from um, which I think we can start to understand um, Italian politics, because he pulled out of that coalition, and as a result, Italian politics has become destabilised. The resulting effect of that destabilisation is um, uh, an ongoing instability to try and prevent there being elections for the past three or so years since late, 20, late 2019, um, but 
Italian politics sort of chugging along and continuing um, uh, continuing for like the past three years, despite it continually seeming like it's about to run out of steam. The reason why I think that it's so important to avoid elections for many of the other parties that are not the Liga Nord is that if if there are elections, really there's going to be a right-wing populist coalition that all of the other parties in Italian politics do not want. And um, really it's going to be about 55 to 60% support for the three parties of the Brothers of Italy, um, uh, the, uh, the Brothers of Italy, the Liga Nord, and this other party, if you remember, Silvio Berlusconi, Forza Italia. And that would represent a really radical coalition, one that would upset not just Italy's liberal mainstream, but potentially the balance, um, potentially the balance of um, European politics, and also the and really upset the financial markets as well. So that's the context. Yep. And what I guess the main concern here is that so you have Italy, which is you know one of the has a lot of debt, especially past the COVID crisis. So they've added more onto already, which was seen as you know extreme levels, and. You know, the, I guess like you explained, thankfully, the last government with Conte as, at its head uh, was more was more of a, you know, I guess a, a, a paper tag, tiger, would you say, I guess. Now, now it's there's potential for a, uh, a flare up again. And how does that, I guess, impl with financial conditions and just political conditions, how does that fare for the rest of the EU and European stability, particularly in a time where, you know, the EU is really trying to, you know, I guess keep everyone in order. Yeah, so I mean, there are quite a few factors at play here. I mean, um, as you said, Italy's got very high debt and it's, it already had really high debt before the, um, uh, before the COVID crisis. And, um, and now I think it's got something like 180% of GDP, 180% GDP to debt ratio, which is unprecedented. And it's yes. one of those, it's like, um, not quite, maybe like the only comparison might be something like Japan, a country mm -hmm. like Japan, but Italy's relative to Japan's quite profligate, hasn't quite gone through that ageing population. Basically, it's not good news for anyone within the EU. Mm -hmm. The reason why, the reason why this is also quite a big danger, I think, as well, is because, um, is because, um, um, is because I think that, um, uh, Italy is such a big economy relative to yes. like everyone else within the European Union. Mm -hmm. If it goes down, it's got so many connections to other big European economies. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a large banking sector, um, and um, and I don't think it would. I don't think it would. You'd be able to isolate this crisis in the same way. So I think that it would be. It would be dangerous for a um, wide variety. Uh, it would be a, dangerous for a wide variety of reasons. But um, essentially, if if people stop buying Italian bonds, the price of borrowing goes up, and you get this downward spiral. And once you got the Italian crisis in government, does the European Union step in? Do you, for example, um, increase? The amount of quantitative easing what do you do there's a whole load of questions there um there's a whole load of questions there and maybe it's maybe you'd able be able to deal with it but it would certainly be crisis mode once again for the european union yeah and also into that equation you know uh with uh, potential hard economic times a disillusionment with of the financial markets and the and the trust of italian bonds and financial instruments you know how does that play into the Potential, potential, potential Euroscepticism because that's that's the big word now uh, in any European country that may face uh, you know less stability than normal. 
it's very interesting because actually, if we if we if we go back about twenty five years ago, Italy um, wasn't was one of the least Eurosceptic countries in the whole continent, and. Um, the story of the past 25 years, or at least one way of telling it, would be um, how you managed to have this country which traditionally embraced Europe as a means to ex it, like uh, escape from um, much of the corruption endemic to Italian politics, how that story turned into one where there are um, many right-wing politicians calling for um, maybe not escape from the European Union or like exit from the European Union in the way in which um, in the way in which you might have had about five years ago before Brexit made that like a reality a reality and mm -hmm. actually what that meant on the table and a lot more undesirable mm -hmm. to a lot of countries. But I think the other thing. Uh, but I think you've even even then I think like you've got. Um, a sense of like um, uh, potentially they're less willing to uh, potentially they're less willing to fully commit to Europe or sort of make or make sort of to this maybe the substantive reforms which are needed to uh, make Europe a functioning entity. So I think that you've if you've got like a, a lack of commitment to Europe, if you've got a lack of commitment to Europe, that's really problematic. I think that the way in which this filters in is that filters in is that there is this narrative I think it broadly has a has a degree of truth that um, um, has a degree of truth that Italy's um, um, Italy has been like much of Europe saddled with a raw deal because of the way in which the Eurozone works essentially um, essentially Germany gets to produce um, gets to produce with the with the benefit of a joint currency um, to these uh, more or like northern European countries get to produce um, uh, far more competitively than the southern European uh, countries because um, because with the absence of currency fluctuations you're not able to devalue naturally or um, um, naturally or for example with any formal devaluation you don't have that you don't have that flexibility and as a result and as a result you might not have the ability to you might not have not have the ability the monetary flexibility to make your economy work in the way in which it um, the work work in the way in which it should so I think that's potentially a root of the skepticism um, a root of the skepticism but I, I mean there's many complex factors and I, I don't think I'm quite qualified to talk about <laughs> no of course yeah. but definitely being able to fine-tune an economy is yeah so if, if, a, if a nation lacks that then here I think then you know it takes away a lot of uh, you know ability to mitigate potential factors now if we talk about you know the individual power players in Italy right now the name Mario Draghi can't avoid it where 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 does Draghi stand in this whole equation? Yeah, so Draghi is um, really key, and this sort of comes back to this story of how Italy has managed to continue uh, survive. Uh, how Italy's politics has avoided an election for three years. Part of the reason is because of Mario Draghi. Originally, after after they. Um, the, the Liga Nord left the coalition, the PD or the Party Democratic uh, Democratic Party, sort of this social democratic party, or centre left, um, joined together with the uh, Five Star Movement. They came together. It was slightly uncomfortable, and eventually, eventually, um, another key figure. Sorry, this is getting a bit messy, but Mario Renzi 
uh, sorry, Matteo Renzi, who is a former Prime Minister and a member of the party Democrat, uh, PD, uh, Democratic Party, pulled out and made this coalition unstable. Mm-hmm. L- elections looked really likely. So, Mario Draghi was called on by the President, Sergio, uh, Sergio Mattarella, um, to form a new, um, to form, a, to head a new coalition to be the Prime Minister. And for Italians, uh, Mario Draghi um, really is a trusted and loved figure, uh, loved figure, one of the few politicians which you can really say that about. He had like a central role in saving basically the whole Eurozone. And as a result, many Italians sort of see a mythology attached to him. And his importance in like saving the whole Eurozone, saying, I mean, if you remember, the whatever it takes line, i.e. we're going to do whatever it takes to save the Eurozone in the aftermath of the Greek crisis when he was head of the European Central Bank. That's also giving a lot of confidence to financial markets. They recognise him as a safe pair of hands. These two things, the fact that Italians have lots of trust in him and the fact that um, the fact that um, financial markets have a lot of trust in him meant that um, meant that for the past like uh, few years, really since um, Conte resigned in 20, late 2020, or sorry, early 2021, um, for the past year or so, um, it's been a really stable, really successful government, um, combined with the fact that um, the European Recovery Fund has been pumping funds into the Italian economy. M- M- uh, Matteo... Uh, sorry, Mario Draghi. So many Matteos and Marios. Mm-hmm. Um, Mario Draghi has been um, using these funds and um, has been using these funds and has been able to get quite a lot of support from both the financial markets and the Italian political system and the European Union to place these um, really um, in, in whatever way he wants. And that has meant that there's unusually been the ability to plan um, rather effectively and um, and act and act. Um, and act as sort of a, an effective um, an effective and stable leader. The problem is is that the the position of the presidency is now opening, um, and as we record this, it's sort of the elections have just started, and it's not like you get to vote, but everyone in the Italian political system almost gets together and puts their votes in for who they think should be president. Mario Draghi seems to want the presidential position, and it seems as if he might get it. If he does get it, he will have to resign his post as Prime Minister and there will have a, be a vacuum in the Italian political system. This is like really important because um, it's likely that those long-awaited elections are likely to happen and if they do, once again, the right-wing candidates will get, will probably come in, win the elections and um, elect um, uh, sort of a uh, right of centre Prime Minister, mm-hmm. uh, or not even right of centre, radical populist right. And that's actually an interesting, without all the implications of crisis and what's going to happen, what, could you speak to why Italy is even on this right-wing path in the first place? Because you know, usually when we speak about right-wing populist movements in whatever country it may be, it's, you know, how did they get there? Why are the people feeling so disillusioned? But it seems that that's already taken hold in Italy but we're, we're not even talking about it. Well, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I, there's probably quite a lot of complex factors. I mean, traditionally, I think Italy's been more comfortable with um, comfortable with um, right-wing populism and the legacy of fascism, I would not say is as um, 
they have an experience with fascism, but it doesn't feel as if they've necessarily had a reckoning with fascism mm-hmm. in the same way that Germany or many of the countries that fought for uh, fought, fought for or against Germany like actually had. Um, you've had it's a tradition in Italian politics, which I think that you you um, it's even possible to defend Mussolini uh, Mussolini in a way which would be completely abhorrent in many other countries. Um, so you've got that factor, which I think is always brewing underneath the surface. But I think you've also you've also got more recently. I think you've just got a deep, wide, le- a deep and wide um, dissatisfaction from different parts of Italy. So, for example, in the south of Italy, you've got. Um, you've got a structure, structurally, uh, economically disadvantaged region, which has had years of effectively very, very little of, uh, investment, lots of corruption, and therefore lots of anger against the political establishment. This used to be, um, this used to be, um, I think, channeled into the Five Star Movement. But ever since the Five Star Movement became, uh, I think, less, um, less politically radical. Lots of that support has gone away towards these, either the Liga Nord, but more recently the Brothers of Italy, this party headed by this figure Giorgio Maloney, um, 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 who is um, who is really sort of another uh, uh, far right populist figure. Mm-hmm. You've also had, um, you've also got, I think, a media environment, and this comes to the figure of Silvio Berlusconi, which is um, concentrated in the hands of concentrated in the hands of quite. Um, a right wing, um, quite a right wing media environment that gives um, space and airtime to um, to um, these right wing figures, especially Silvio Berlusconi, and that's really, I think, the core of his support, which is about ten to fifteen percent, not insignificant. And also, you have this traditional Liga Nord support, which traditionally came out of um, it traditionally came out of northern Italy's dissatisfaction with having to give a lot of money away to southern Italy, mm-hmm. but um, increasingly now has dissatisfaction with um, a large amount of immigration. And you've got to remember how Italy is on the front lines of this immigration yeah. thing in a way which not many other European countries are. So lots of complex factors, but immigration, tradition, uh, non-investment in the South, corruption, and the rise of several different parties which are able to appeal to different constituents, I think, are key factors. Yes. And the other thing is, though, so this whole crisis as a whole, uh, it's often been said that, you know, the, you know, compared to maybe North American and British politics, continental European political crises are drawn out, they're messy, they're slow. Uh, but, you know, for example, the Greek crisis um, in 2012 shattered that norm. It was almost overnight that we had talk of, you know, oh, getting Greece out of the Eurozone. Um, it, Italy, although being a major economy, that's probably more, not more likely. But do you think there's a chance for rapid change and you know maybe Brussels treatment towards Italy as right now as you know the one of the major economies a driver of demand to you know this backwater that needs to be dealt with yeah so um I think that what so like how quickly is this going to be yeah how quickly yeah and how quickly and also is Brussels approach to Italy going to change overnight or are they going to draw it out I think that um I think that um, it really, I think that this crisis, if it happens, I think that part of the reason why it would take quite, I think it would take quite a long time to work out if it does happen. And I think that's partly because 
uh, the hard, hard, one of the only hard facts of politics is electoral arithmetic. And although Italy has a legacy of this thing called transformism, where like politicians are basically, um, to put it to put it quite um, uh, uncharitably, go back on whoever voted for them to do whatever they like, right. create create new coalitions whenever they feel like it. I think that even then you've got this quite hard right political entity which might come about, which I think is going to be quite hard for Brussels to come to sort of compromise with in the way in which maybe Brussels would like. Mm -hmm. I also don't think that it's really feasible. Um, also, I think that it's ripe for fudge, uh, a fudge, a like typical Brussels fudge, mm -hmm. in, that, in that you're going to, you're going to really get... Um, there's no obvious solution to what um, to what uh, to the the debt crisis because you can't default on debt. That's going to destroy confidence in the eurozone. Um, it's unlikely that you're going to pay it back in any significant way because um, um, because maybe that would require northern European northern Europeans to give more than they would be willing to give. And there's already a lot of political tension here. So I think the most likely outcome is years of protracted. And negotiations and potentially Italy just sort of struggles along in quite a in quite a sort of like mm -hmm. boring but um, boring but I think um, uh, boring way I think uh, yeah, yeah I think that's probably and would you say it. that's to their ability that's so big it's, 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 it's kind of like 2008 with the banks it's too big to fail yeah it's not because because the EU has shown that you know they can't they can be decisive in times of political crisis again to use the Greek Greek, Greek example, but also, you know, recently how they've turned up the rhetoric on the migration crisis. They're, you know, they become more to the point. Um, the EU can do that, but probably with Italy, because it's so big, to, too big to fail, that you think they have to just take it slow. Yeah, I would say so. I'd say that, I'd say that with the 2000, I'd say that with the 2008 crisis in Greece, it was a case of, like, you could reasonably use this leverage if maybe you get kicked out of the European Union or not. And I also think that the scale of Greek debt, I think, is likely to be like far exceed far exceed that of um, Italy's as a proportion of GDP. But also just like we're expecting this crisis. Yes. Greece's crisis came out of absolutely nowhere, whereas Italy's crisis, Italy's crisis, everyone's been looking at it for about 10 years thinking, oh, God, Italy's debt is really high. Um, Italy's got a productivity crisis. It doesn't feel like it's going to get out of this what are we going to do but there has been no flashpoint so i think that european policy policy makers are prepared for this and probably have a collection of tools to use the other thing to note i think just briefly is that because we've been through greece greece we've got the experience of greece and we've got policy tools which are able to deal with a debt crisis in a large european economy um, even if Italy is so much larger, so much more significant from Greece, I don't think that should be overplayed. You can use quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. You can say, we'll do whatever it takes. That's true. Well, William, I'm going to have to stop you there, but there's some really insightful points, and it's definitely food for thought. And I guess we'll all be watching Italy in the coming in the coming year and even the coming weeks as you uh, say, yeah, the I would presidential say over the next starts. over the next over the next few week right well, next week probably when this podcast comes out mm -hmm. things start might change might start changing absolutely yes anyway to our listeners thank you for tuning in this week and we'll have another episode for you on the bulletin next week cheers mm -hmm.